Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, where we'll be this morning. Acts chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 41. This is Peter's sermon there at the day of Pentecost, which we started talking about last week. Before we go to the Lord, uh, before we go to his word, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. Lord, oftentimes we would rather say something else. We'd rather say words that we crafted in order to lift ourselves up other than you. Or words that dismissed our sin or even allowed for it. And so, Lord, we pray, well, first we we ask forgiveness for the misuse of your word. And then we pray that you would help us to use it correctly. That as we read it, it would speak to us, convict us of our sin. Lord, we pray that you would lead us to the truth, lead us to all righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I looked at this passage this week, it made me think of, uh, you might be surprised by this, but it actually made me think of some of the games that I play. You guys are familiar with the fact that I'm a a board game enthusiast. Uh, I have almost a hundred different games now on my shelves. Almost. Probably this year I'll hit a hundred. I'll be sure to let everyone know. But one of the aspects that makes a good board game is this concept of replayability. The idea that you could play the game a hundred times and you'd still be intrigued by it. Still wonder if you could have done better. Perhaps you're still even seeing brand new things that you've never seen before. I have some games on my shelf. Uh, that have almost no replayability. You may be familiar with games like this. Maybe they're not, or maybe they're story driven. And after you get through the story, the game's kind of over. That that's one type. Some of them are just shallow games, and I don't mean to offend you, but uh, some of them, like Monopoly, of course, is pretty shallow. How do you win? Well, you just get hotels and then you win and hope that you roll the right dice or like risk, you know, you conquer Australia and then, then you can conquer the world kind of easy. Then I have others that have this infinite replayability, you know, not, not only there are lots of ways to win, but there are just so many variables in the game. There are some of, I have some games that literally have 150 different cards in them and you only get like three every game. You're just never going to see them all. Even after 20, 30, 50 plays of some of these games, I'm still seeing new things. They're still new and intriguing to me. In our text today, Peter is going to open some very familiar texts to a group of Jewish people who probably knew their Old Testament. They probably knew these passages that Peter's going to speak to them. And for many of them, they probably thought... Oh, I've heard this before. It's nothing new. To them, perhaps the Old Testament has lost its replayability, as it were. But what's different now with Peter speaking? Well, Jesus 
is different. Jesus' coming changes everything. In fact, the Old Testament had always spoken about Jesus, but now they were able to see it in a new light because he had come, he had died, risen from the dead, and now was at the right hand of the Father. But some were still going to be unconvinced. Many will see Jesus in those texts and realize that he is indeed the Savior of the world, and many will not. What about for us? Well, I feel like there are times that the gospel of Jesus Christ has somehow lost its sheen to us. It's no longer attractive to us because it isn't shiny. It isn't new any longer. Unlike a game that's on my shelf, the gospel actually does have inexhaustible riches associated with it. It is infinitely past our ability to completely understand it. We'll always be learning something new about the gospel, how it applies to our lives. Even for all eternity, we'll continue to be searching it out when we're with the Lord. And so as we look at this sermon in the book of Acts today, that was given there to many different people in Jerusalem. I want us to consider three main ideas. The Spirit signifies His coming. The Father ordained His coming. And then the Son of God who came. And so with that, let's read the text. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my my male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence.
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many others, <clears throat> other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves for this crooked, or from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And in many ways, I feel the need to just be done. Uh, Peter said it much better than I can. We'll review what we looked at last week quickly. Remember last week, the Spirit came on the men and women there in the upper room, there at the beginning of chapter 2. And this scene where they were speaking in tongues, they were speaking in other languages, as it were, the scene kind of spilled out into the streets and where people from many nations who were there gathered for the Feast of Weeks heard about the mighty works of God in their own language. And remember, they were confused. Some of them had legitimate questions. They said, what are we to do? What, are, what does all this mean is what they said. Others just passed off Peter and his friends as a bunch of drunks. Well, Peter responds to that. And remember, we used that, that uh, dichotomy to talk about how that exists in the world today. People will usually have one or two responses to the gospel. We'll see that come out in this passage as well as Peter begins speaking. Peter is actually addressing the skeptics in this. As he says, you see in verse 15, he's talking about the ones who thought he was drunk. He uses their false statement about him being drunk in order to talk about the Holy Spirit which signified the coming of our Lord, which is what we'll begin with. The first point, the Spirit signifies His coming. So what He did in order to contrast this idea of the Christians being drunk, He said it's only the third hour of the day, which is like 9 o'clock a.m. Peter quotes instead from the prophet Joel, who we just finished studying. He quotes, uh, he quotes from Joel chapter 2, there in verses 17 through 21. In the last days it shall be, 
God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. He goes on. Remember, what did we say about this passage when we talked about it uh, in December? This was just one of many passages that foretold the spirit being poured out upon the, on the people of God. We could go through and pick many of them out throughout the Old Testament. However, this one in Joel 2 is significant because it is very clear that the coming of the spirit would come after the one who is called Lord in that passage in verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, who's he talking about there? Joel in the Old Testament. He was talking about Jesus. And we're also going to see that this passage is different in that it's going to be very clear to them because it's going to shake some things up in the church. It says that people are going to prophesy and dream dreams and see visions. We're going to see this happen as we read the book of Acts. And again, this is for everyone, not just for the Jewish elite, but for the servants. There it talks about in verse 18, the male servants and the female servants, the young and the old. This is this gospel's for everybody. They're going to see visions. They're going to prophesy all the things that we're going to continue to see as we go throughout this book. But it also points to another prophecy that was made in the Old Testament. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the concept of the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. What's different with the promises that were made with their fathers? Abraham, Moses, David, as he quotes there later in this text. What did those men have no possibility of doing? Keeping the covenant. They had no possibility of following that law that the Lord laid down. How did that change with Jesus? Jesus, the only true Israelite in that term, kept the law. And because of that, 
we get the blessings as being those who followed it. Not because we followed it, but because he did. And then what does Jesus get because we didn't follow it? He takes upon himself our sin. He received the curse that we deserved. We received the blessings that he deserved. And what is this blessing? Well, eternal life, of course. But what is our blessing here while we are here on this earth? Well, there in Jeremiah, it says that he will write his law on our hearts. How is he going to do that? How does it come to live there? Well, the Holy Spirit's coming doesn't mean that we'll have a helper that is just sometimes with us. That is going between all the believers, kind of helping. Well, I've got an appointment with the Spirit on Thursday. Maybe I can talk to him then and we can get some help. No. The coming of the helper, the coming of the Spirit, means that we're always going to have God, the Spirit, right here with us, in us. His law is on our hearts because he has taken up residence in our hearts. Remember in Ezekiel 36, a passage that we quote a lot. He will cleanse us from our sin. Who? The Spirit. He will cause us to walk in his ways. The Spirit. How? Because he's God, the Holy Spirit. How does this change us? I think the real question for us today as believers is the Spirit's influence in our lives evident? That's a question. That's not a question to cause you doubt. I'm not here to to make you feel bad about your faith. But it does. it is helpful for us to look inward many times. Does my life cause people to wonder about the mighty works of God? As it was happening there on the streets there in Jerusalem that day. Or does it cause them to think that I'm just a morning drunk? What fruit is there in my life that evidences the Spirit's indwelling? That shows that indeed he has written his law on my heart. And again, the proper response to this is not, well, I'm a bad Christian and then hang your head. That is not how we are to be as believers. We are all bad at this. We are all bad at it. But how does the gospel change us? Does it? Is it currently changing us? As believers, we must make sure that the truths that we believe are always fresh and alive. It's why we preach through the books of the Bible here. So that you can see the same true doctrines throughout every book of scripture. We preached on Job. What did you see? Jesus. We've been in Ephesians. We've been in 1 Samuel. We've been in John. What's the message? Jesus saves sinners like me. That's the message in every one of those books. And it's fresh and new throughout all of Scripture. You can see and you should see Jesus Christ on every single page of Scripture. And if we get to the point where we see our faith or the message of the gospel as just an old game that has become boring to us, The fault is not with our faith or even the presenter of that truth, but with us. Renewal daily 
should come from the word of God, which he has written on our hearts as believers. Let us come to cherish it in all that we do. So the next point, the father ordained his coming. Look with me at verses 22 through 24 there in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why did lawless men kill Jesus? We could read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of those stories about Jesus living, doing the works that he did, making a certain group of people angry the entire time, and this kind of fever pitch building up to where Jesus is finally arrested and killed. Why did they do it? They hated him. They called him a blasphemer. They could not stand to be around him because he spoke the truth. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that they hate the truth because they hate God. But ultimately, why did they do it? The text here tells us he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Todd read for us this morning from Isaiah 53. That was written long before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. That book, or that, that book, of course, in that particular chapter is about the death of our Lord Jesus. According to the eternal decrees of God, there would be certain people who would orchestrate the death of the Son. Think of these people. They're named throughout Scripture. Judas, Annas and Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the many who shouted, crucify him. And free Barabbas, all of those were there that day and they orchestrated this according to the eternal decree, definite plan of God. This is a tough truth, but it's still the truth. And again, Peter quotes from the Old Testament, this time with Psalm 16, which is what we read together responsively this morning, the Psalm of David. And he talks about there, he says, I saw the Lord... Always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Who's David talking about? He's talking about Jesus. This passage is, of course, talking about David personally suffering. Yes. But who does it point to ultimately? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Who is that pointing to ultimately? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Just in case we aren't convinced that Psalm 16 is about the resurrection of Jesus, Peter exegetes this passage for us. Look at verses 29 through 33. Brothers, I may say with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us to this day. Just in case they're convinced that this is about David. Maybe David is... It's no longer dead. No, David's tomb is right over there is what he's saying. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. It's a prophecy given to David. 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and if we and we are all witnesses. Who was David writing about? Who did he know that he was writing about? He knew he was writing about the Christ. And then Peter loops it back on the Holy Spirit. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. If you want to, if someone ever says, well, I don't believe in the Trinity, just take them here to Acts 2 and have them show you otherwise that the Apostle Peter believed in a triune God. All three of them, and the, the points of my sermon, if that's not convincing, are right there for us. So also make sure that we are seeing these acts from a triune God. All members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in this ultimate act of redemption, bringing his people to salvation. And then he goes on, quoting from Psalm 110. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, it demonstrates that unlike David, who was a perfect, an imperfect savior for a time, David, yes, delivered the people of Israel. He was a good king for them, but he wasn't perfect. Just read his story. I promise he's not. But unlike him, Jesus, who did come later, the perfect Savior, is not here. He's risen. Where is he? At the right hand of the Father, making his enemies his footstool. And that brings us to the next point, the Son of God who came. So according to Peter, who is Jesus? As he's preached for us so eloquently in this passage. The Lord of the Old Testament whose name you must call upon to be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. He is the Christ of the Old Testament who was prophesied to die and be raised taking away the sins of his people. He is the conquering king who would put his enemies under his footstool, the enemies of his people, namely those old enemies, sin and death, under his feet, and he will reign forever on the throne of David. And then verse 36, Peter brings it right to him. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. If anybody ever says to you, well, it never says in the scriptures that Jesus is God. Take them to Acts chapter 2 and show them otherwise. This Jesus who came is the Son of God. Jesus laid, or Peter laid out this plain truth. It pierced to the very center of their souls. And what was their response? Verse 37, it, when they heard this, it cut them to the heart. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? What shall we do? Well, his response was simple, was it not? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Who is this promise for? 
for you and for your children and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. As we continue through our covenant theology class in Sunday school, we're going to be talking more and more about this as we see the continuation of these promises to the family and not just necessarily the heads of the household, as you see there, uh, as you see that in the Old Testament. But also it's here. This is a sign of the covenant that's to be given to who? The men and women there, of course. Again, since this is brand new, since circumcision was just for men. And also their children. If you receive the promise, what do you do? You also receive the sign of that promise. And again, we're going to be talking more and more about that as we work through that those doctrines in our Sunday school class. And he continued to preach to them. And what was the crux of his message? Save yourself from this crooked generation. And there at the end. So those who received this word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Was Peter's message fluffy? No. It was a hard message. So much so that it cut them to the heart. Yet 3,000 souls were saved that day. So the question for us, have you ever read through the gospel and read the stories of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, read the theology uh, found in a book like Romans or Ephesians about what Jesus' coming did for us? Have you ever read these things and, and thought, what shall I do? Have they ever stirred you to action like it did for these men and women here? In this, in this passage, in this story today. The action that they took that day was repentance that led to their salvation. And for those of us here who are believers, this isn't something that we need to continue to do. And I think that's an important point to bring out. Remember, God doesn't break his promises. His promises are independent of our ability to keep them. If, if it was up to us, of course, we would be here today, gone tomorrow. But God keeps us. We don't keep him. Thankfully, So there's no need for us to continue to get saved over and over again. There's no need for us even to get baptized again. Because the sign of the covenant doesn't wash off just because we can't behave. He keeps us. He keeps us. So how should we respond? In Christ to this message. Repentance, for one. Not for our salvation, but to continue to grow in our relationship with our Lord Jesus. The more that we see our sin in the light of his goodness and his mercy, the closer that we'll grow to him. And then we should also want this for other people. Absolutely. How can we give them the same? How can we give this same truth to others? I think many times we struggle with this because we see people who have a knack for getting into these kinds of conversations with others about the gospel. For some, that is their gift, and it may frustrate the rest of us who don't have those gifts. And so I think for, for you, what's the question? What gifts do you have that could bring the gospel to bear on someone's soul, just like was done here in Acts 2? You're not Peter. Remember, Peter was a fisherman till the Holy Spirit came down upon him and gave him this, this gift. And so I recognize that we're not all preachers, 
Throughout this book, however, we're going to see lots and lots of different kinds of folks using different kinds of ministry in order to see the gospel go forward. That should be an encouragement to those of us who are not Peter or Paul. Peter and Paul are the mouthpieces for sure, and we're thankful for their ministries, just like we're thankful for the ministries of those who are able to preach and teach so eloquently. But without the supporting cast, the church never would have got off the launch pad that day. As we continue to study this book, let me encourage you to be asking yourself this question. What is it that I can do in order to see the gospel go out into the world? Maybe you're not the one who's supposed to preach the gospel to hundreds every week or even dozens or even four. But what is your what are you doing to see the gospel go out into the world? And so in conclusion, next week, we're going to see how this message stirred the church to action from within. We'll see there at the end of this chapter how the church acted as a church, how they formed and what they did each week. But for this week. We saw the gospel faithfully preached from Peter, and many hundreds responded. I want you to see that. Was his gospel something new, something fancy? No. It was the same messages that they knew from Joel, from Psalms. This is our goal, is it not? Not only to see many hundreds come to faith, Lord willing, but for the gospel to be so fresh and wonderful in our lives that we are constantly dealing with the question, what shall I do? Brothers and sisters, rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. However, don't rest with the message that we have. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, many times... I admit that I hear this message and I think, oh, I've heard that before. Lord, help me to see the gospel fresh every day because I need it every day. I need to be reminded that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord Jesus, you are that Savior. Lord, continue to draw us closer to yourself. Continue to make us more like you that the world might know that you are the Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.